everyone. Welcome to the 46th episode of our World News Podcast. This podcast, along with all of our other podcasts, are part of Northern Provisions LLC. This one is going from January 8th to January 21st. It's another two-week. Check out The Lethal Minds Journal, a veteran and active duty publication focusing on foreign and military affairs, art, and culture. Take a look at the journal's Bulletin from the Borderlands, a bi-monthly foreign affairs publication from multiple talented intelligence analysts and independent journalists. Head over to lethalmindsjournal.substack.com or Instagram at lethal.minds.journal to see more. Check out the Freelancers, that's a media and research collective dedicated to covering modern conflicts with a soft focus on foreign fighters. Find them on Twitter at CBT Freelancers, Instagram at Freelancers Blog, and their website at Freelancers conflictblog.wordpress.com. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash analyze educate, or you can buy us a coffee at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate, and we will head into the news. In the South Caucasus, state-organized Azerbaijani protesters are still blockading the de facto ethnic Armenian Republic of Artsakh. The Lachkin Corridor, which connects Artsakh and Armenia, runs through the Azerbaijani-controlled land, and it is supposed to be kept open by Russian peacekeepers in the area who have so far failed to enforce ceasefire provisions that ended the Second Karabakh War in 2020. The blockade of the corridor has led to food and medicine shortages in Artsakh, as well as at least one person dying due to not being able to travel to Armenia for better medical care. At this time, the only vehicles being let through the blockade are those belonging to Russian forces and the Red Cross who are desperately trying to bring aid to Artsakh. The blockade has gone on now for six weeks and it shows no sign of ending. In Iran, anti-regime protests in the country have continued for the fifth month in response to the killing of Masha Amini by Iran's morality police in Tehran. Protests have been recorded in dozens of cities across the country. The death toll of demonstrators and bystanders ranges anywhere from 200, according to the government, to 573, according to Reuters. Other groups have made estimates in between that range as well. Over 70 security force personnel have been killed as well. This round of protests grew to become the largest in scale since the 1979 Islamic Revolution that brought the current regime to power. Approximately 90,000 Iranians have engaged in the protests, which have been spearheaded by university students, particularly in the capital city. The Iranian government is continuing to blame the protests on the U.S. and Israel, saying that the two are trying to create an Islamic state branch in Iran. The government is also trying to frame the protests as an insurgency. Additionally, Iran has been lashing out beyond its borders, striking Kurdish Iranian dissident militias based in Iraq, blaming the protests on them. The scale of protests has certainly declined in recent weeks. Since the start of the new year, at least two days have gone without any protest activity recorded. However, the protest movement is still ongoing. Regime forces have been accused of gunning down protesters en masse, beating people, and committing other horrific crimes such as sexual assault. Of the protesters that have been arrested and imprisoned, some have been charged with waging war against God, and at least four of them have been found guilty and executed. Those protesters were 23-year-old Moshen Shikari, who was accused of blocking a road and assaulting a police officer with a machete. He was executed on December 8th, and human rights groups have called his trial a show without due process. 
On December 12th, 23-year-old Madreja Ranavard was executed after being found guilty of involvement in the death of two Bashij militiamen. His trial was likewise referred to as a sham by human rights groups. Mohammed Mehdi Karami and Mohammed Husseini were executed a couple weeks ago. The two men were accused of killing 27-year-old Rahala Ajaminian. He is a Bashij militiaman that was in the city of Karaj. The Bashiz is subordinate to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps and has played a key role in suppressing protests for the past few months, actually five months. The Iranian Human Rights News Agency believes that at least 26 other Iranians may face the death penalty as well for their involvement in the protest, and we will keep you guys up to date on that. Moving on to Brazil, on the 8th, in the capital of Brasilia, at least 4,000 pro-Bolsonaro demonstrators marched on the National Congress, Supreme Federal Court, and the President's official workspace. They were protesting the inauguration of President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who beat Bolsonaro in the 2022 election in October. All three areas were heavily looted and vandalized. Over 1,500 people have so far been arrested in connection with the attack. If you want more details on this and the events leading up to it in Brazil, I wrote about this in the most recent issue of Bulletin from the Borderlands. I suggest you check it out. There's lots of good details in there. And moving on to the United States, this one is actually pretty U.S. heavy. One of the biggest stories of the past couple of weeks are these classified documents that have been found at multiple places outside of the White House belonging to President Joe Biden. More specifically, these documents date back to the time when he was vice president for Barack Obama and actually when he was in the Senate before that. And therefore, he did not have the authority to declassify government material as he now does as president. The discovery of these classified documents should normally be front page news anyway, but of course, it's an even bigger story now because of the FBI raid and subsequent investigation into former President Donald Trump in relation to classified material found at his Mar-a-Lago residence in Florida that happened late last year. On January 9th, CBS News broke the story that classified documents have been found at the Penn-Biden Center, a think tank under the University of Pennsylvania that was founded by Joe Biden in 2018. Those documents were discovered all the way back on November 2nd, and they were not publicly disclosed until this CBS report. The documents were found by Biden's personal lawyers who contacted the National Archives, who then contacted a prosecutor with the Department of Justice. Attorney General Merrick Garland confirmed on January 12th that the Penn-Biden Center was not an authorized place to store classified documents. On November 9th, the FBI began an assessment into the documents and their storage, and on November 12th, Merrick Garland directed U.S. Attorney John Lausch Jr. to conduct a preliminary investigation. Lausch was chosen because he was more likely to be seen as impartial, in part because he was nominated by President Donald Trump, according to Garland. On December 20th, Biden's lawyers informed Lausch that they found more classified documents, this time in the garage of Biden's home in Wilmington, Delaware. This was not revealed until January 12th. On January 5th, Lausch recommended to A.G. Garland that a special counsel should be appointed to investigate the storage of these documents, you know, to stay away from any perceived conflict of interest or anything like that. On January 10th, Biden acknowledged the CBS report at a press conference and said that he was, quote, surprised to learn that there were any government records that had been taken there to that office. On January 11th, Biden's lawyers found at least one more classified document at his Wilmington home.
On the 12th, Merrick Garland announced the appointment of Robert Hur as special counsel investigating whether any entity or person violated the law in connection to the storage of government documents at the Penn Biden Center or in Biden's homes. On January 13th, the newly Republican-controlled House Judiciary Committee opened up their own investigation as well. And lastly, on January 14th, special counsel to the president, Richard Sauber, who does have a security clearance, announced that a further search by him in the Wilmington home on January 11th found five additional classified documents. An unnamed source reported to CBS that roughly 20 documents in all had been found. One of the big points of contention has been the timeline, of course, specifically the fact that the first set of documents were found at the Biden Penn Center just six days from the midterm election in November. The New York Times claims that the Biden administration kept the discovery of the documents from the public for 68 days so they could try and convince the Justice Department that the storage of the documents was just a bad mistake and that they were hoping to resolve the situation before Biden's presidency was negatively impacted. Again, that's coming from the New York Times. I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Another point of contention has been Biden's response to the incidents surrounding him and separately surrounding President Trump. During an interview with 60 Minutes in September of 2022, Biden called Trump, quote, totally irresponsible. Quote, how could that possibly happen when asked about the storage of classified documents at Trump's home and the subsequent FBI raid to recover the documents? That's all we have for that story. We'll take a quick break and we'll be Another big political story of the new year is, of course, Congressman George Santos of the 3rd Congressional District in New York. Santos is a freshman Republican in the House, and he has been the subject of a lot of headlines uh, based on a litany of apparent lies he's told and legal trouble he's found himself in recently. Many of the lies told by Santos were uncovered before he was sworn into office on January 3rd. So hopping right into it, the Jewish Insider and the Forward reported that Santos lied about his claimed Jewish heritage. He claimed that his maternal grandparents were Holocaust survivors and fled Soviet Ukraine and Nazi-occupied Belgium. However, his maternal grandparents were actually born in Brazil. On the campaign trail, he described himself as both an, quote, American Jew and a, quote, Latino Jew multiple times. In response to the insider and the forward, he said, quote, I never claimed to be Jewish. I'm Catholic because I learned that my maternal grandparents had a Jewish background. I said I was, quote, Jewish. However, during an interview with former Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, he said, quote, my heritage is Jewish. I've always identified as Jewish. I was raised a practicing Catholic, end quote. While supposedly fundraising for a pet charity, he used the name Anthony Zabrowski instead of his real name. He claimed that Zabrowski was the last name of his Ukrainian Jewish maternal grandparents, which is not true. He also claimed to be a college graduate and to have once worked for Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. He has since admitted that all three of those claims were false. Santos claimed that his father was born in Angola, which there is no evidence of. On his campaign website, he claimed that his mother was, quote, the first female executive at a major financial institution and that she worked in the South Tower of the World Trade Center. 
In January 2021, Santos and his husband claimed that eggs and rocks were thrown at their apartment while they were away from home at Mar-a-Lago. However, the owner, who lived in the building as well, did not recall such an incident and no police report was filed in relation to it. In addition to all this, Santos is facing and has faced multiple legal issues, including an ongoing criminal investigation in Brazil relating to financial crimes and a new investigation in the United States in regards to the possible violation of campaign finance laws. This isn't even close to all the legal issues and lies that have come out in recent weeks about Santos. A good part of them are not relevant to this at all. Despite all of the things that I just said, he serves on the Committees for Small Business, Space, Science, and Technology. Moving on, at the beginning of the new year, soldiers with the 4th Ranger Training Battalion became some of the first in the U.S. Army to receive the XM-7 assault rifle and the XM-250 light machine gun. These weapons are set to replace the long-issued M4 service rifle and the M249 light machine gun, respectively. This marks a big step in the Army's transition away from those two weapons and from the long-used 5.56 by 45mm cartridge, which has been in use since the Vietnam War. On January 10th, an incident occurred on Fort Rucker, Alabama, in which U.S. Army Private Abdul N. Latifu was killed by another soldier with an entrenching tool. For those of you that don't know, an entrenching tool is basically a foldable shovel that gets issued to you. Latifu, who's 21 years old from the Bronx in New York, was attending advanced individual training, as was a soldier accused of killing him. No motive for killing Latifu has yet been released, and the investigation is ongoing. On January 11th, the Marine Corps announced that the commander of the assault amphibian school, Colonel John Medeiros, was relieved of command. The decision was made by the commander of the Marine Corps Training Command, Brigadier General Farrell Sullivan, in relation to an incident with an amphibious combat vehicle in October 2022. An ACV flipped during training due to a mechanical issue. Thankfully, all three personnel inside were unharmed. Water training with ACVs was temporarily halted after that to conduct evaluations. The ACV was recently adopted by the Marines to replace the amphibious assault vehicle which the Marine Corps has used consistently since 1971 and in recent years has suffered multiple deadly accidents, including one off the coast of Camp Pendleton in 2020, which killed eight Marines and one Navy corpsman from the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit. The investigation into the October incident is still ongoing, but Colonel Medeiros was not removed because of criminal negligence or misconduct. He will be reassigned elsewhere. On the 12th, 29-year-old Kevin McCormick of Hamden, Connecticut, pleaded guilty in federal court to attempting to provide material support to ISIS. On October 12, 2019, McCormick was prevented by Homeland Security personnel at a Connecticut airport from boarding a connecting flight to Jamaica before traveling to Syria to join ISIS. On October 19th, he made a video pledging allegiance to the first emir of ISIS, Abu Bakr, al-Baghdadi, and he was also arrested while trying to board a plane to Canada. Prior to all this, in September 2019, he tried to buy a gun and knife at a store in Washington, but the clerk refused to sell him the items because he was acting odd and told the clerk that the weapons were, quote, not for an animal. In a conversation with someone in October 2019, he said, quote, I gotta fight, bro, because those people, they fight for me, bro. I know it. I can feel it in my heart. So it's my time to fight. It just is what it is, bro. It's just my it's just my time to go, bro. End quote.
he later said, quote, I need Islamic law. I need, that's what I need. Because if I have these things, it's going to be very hard to kill me, end quote. McCormick was reported to the FBI by a concerned citizen who heard him speaking about his desire to fight with ISIS in Syria at an Islamic community center in Connecticut. He will be sentenced in early April and faces a maximum of 20 years in federal prison. Again, I've said it multiple times, but this is not a kid show. If you have kids listening to this, you probably shouldn't. I'm not going to tell you how to parent, but I would not want my daughter listening to this. That's just me. On January 16th, six people of the same family were all killed after what is believed to have been two gunmen that attacked their home in Goshen, California, a small census-designated place in Tulare County. Authorities believe the attack was carried out by persons linked to a drug cartel, and it occurred between 3 and 4 a.m. The victims of the mass murder are Rosa Peraz, 72, Eladio Peraz Jr., 52, Jennifer Ania, 50, Marco Peraz, 19, Alicia Peraz, 16, and Alicia's son, Nicholas, 10 months old. Sadly, Alicia and her son were both shot in the street while running away from home. Forensic evidence shows that at least one of the gunmen stood over the mother and her child and executed them outside the house. Three other people who were inside the house survived by hiding in and outside the home. Just a week before the attack, a drug search warrant was served on the home with marijuana, methamphetamine, money, and firearms being confiscated by police. Eladio Peraz, who was a convicted felon, was arrested during that search and was released on bail four days later. That search warrant was prompted by law enforcement finding shell casings from a firearm during a parole compliance check on January 3rd. Authorities have made two things clear since the attack. One, this was not a random act of violence and was very much premeditated and targeted. Also, in their words, not all these people in this home are gang members and not all these people are drug dealers. The 16-year-old female is an innocent victim. The grandmother, Rosa Peraz, inside appears to be an innocent victim. And definitely this 10-month-old child is an innocent victim. At this time, they've still not caught anybody in relation to this attack, but we will keep you guys up to date if they do. On January 17th, a jury selection began for the New York trial against the former head of Mexico's Secretariat of Public Safety, Genaro Garcia Luna. Luna was arrested by U.S. authorities in 2019 and is accused of accepting millions of dollars in bribes from the Sinaloa cartel in exchange for allowing the free passage of narcotics into the United States. During the 2018 trial of Sinaloa cartel leader Joaquin El Chapo Guzman, the son of his partner, Ismael El Mayo Zambada, testified to giving Luna a briefcase stuffed with $3 million U.S. million on at least two occasions. He has pleaded not guilty in federal court, and ironically enough, Luna was one of the main architects of the Mexican drug war, which has been ongoing since 2006 under the administration of then-President Felipe Calderón. He is also accused of warning the cartel about upcoming law enforcement action against them and sharing intel on rival cartels with them. Before his tenure as public safety head, he was in charge of the Federal Investigation Agency from 2001 to 2006. In 2013, Forbes placed him on their list of the top 10 most corrupt Mexican officials. He is one of the highest level Mexican officials to face charges in relation to drug trafficking. And the last story for the podcast, as of January 17th, the Department of Veteran Affairs will begin paying for emergency mental health services and any 
VA service or at private clinics. This applies to all veterans unless you have received a dishonorable discharge and it applies even if you are not enrolled in the VA medical system. Costs covered also include inpatient and outpatient care, transportation, and appointment fees. So if this is something you guys ever need to utilize, absolutely take advantage of it. And that is all I have for you guys this week. I want to thank you all for supporting this podcast. Again, it means a lot to me. You could find this on your favorite apps. That includes Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast. Anywhere you listen to them, we're there. You could find us on Twitter and Instagram at Analyze Educate. That is all one word. You could also find us on Telegram, Analyze and Educate. It's the and symbol, not and spelled out. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash analyze educate or at ko-fi at ko-fi.com slash analyze educate. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on the app you use to listen to this podcast, and I will see you.